You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. It is good to be with you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. And as you're turning there, uh, today we're finishing up our series that we've titled Union with Christ. And in this series, we've just been unpacking the central truth of Christianity, that when you trust in Jesus, He joins His life to yours such that you are now in Christ, and Christ is now in you, and that changes everything. And so um, today we're going to bring that series to a close by looking at 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm just going to read two verses. We'll bounce around to some other places, but we're going to start here. So let's go to verse 12, chapter 4, 1 Peter. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together one more time. Would you pray for me as I pray for you? Um, Father, we do just ask that, um, yeah, Lord, that you would, you've brought us into this place this morning because you want to speak to us. And so I just ask that you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts, mine included, um, to hear what it is that you have to say to us. And I'm very mindful that we come into this room Uh, with different backgrounds and different stories, but the one thing we all have in common is our desperate need for Jesus. Um, We bring into this room the the fact that we've all sinned and been sinned against, and therefore we carry a lot of baggage and hurt and pain, and we really do need you, Jesus. And so I pray that you would uh, bring resurrection glory and life um, into the hearts of everyone in this room. Do it for your glory and our joy as we get to watch you do it and participate in it. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Well, in the 1860s, Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer and businessman in the city of Chicago. He uh, was a senior partner at one of Chicago's biggest law firms. Um, He had all these real estate developments on the north side of the city, so he made a lot of money. But he wasn't just a wealthy businessman. Horatio was also a family man, and he was a Christian man. He and his wife, Anna, had been married happily for a long time. They had five children. Um, They were all members of this Presbyterian church in Chicago where he also served as one of the elders. So if you look at Horatio's life in the late 1860s or even now, you would say, man, he's got financial prosperity. He's got a healthy, happy family. They're all following Jesus together. Like, all is well. Life is good for Horatio Spafford. However... Uh, in, in 1871, a series of events would come into Horatio's life that would begin to flip his life upside down. Um, it all started that year when he lost his one and only son at just the age of four years old to scarlet fever. Uh, later that same year, as he was still grieving the loss of his son, the great Chicago fire broke out and it spread across the city of Chicago and it destroyed all of his real estate investments. So in a moment, Horatio Spafford lost all his money, All his investments, everything he had built uh, up and worked so hard for, gone. So that was a a devastating and tragic year for the Spaffords. Um, And for the next two years, it was really a tumultuous time. Their 
They're grieving all that they've lost. They're trying to rebuild. And so to help the family heal, like a good husband and dad, Horatio says, you know what? We need to take a family vacation. We're going to take a family vacation together. We need to get away together. We need to kind of gather ourselves. And so he maps out this whole trip to England. They're going to get on a ship, and he's going to take his family to England. They're going to connect with his good friend, the great evangelist D.L. Moody. And they're going to hear D.L. Moody speak, and then they're going to tour the English countryside. And so they got this whole trip mapped out. However, on the day that the ship is supposed to leave, Horatio gets hung up with some last-minute business developments. And he, he has to stay behind. He can't go. And so rather than kind of ruin the fun and cancel the trip, he tells his wife, you know what, Anna, you put, the, put our daughters, you and, you and our four girls, you get on the ship. You guys go on ahead of, uh, ahead of me. I'll, I'll catch the next ship out of Chicago, and I'll, I'll be there in about a week. So Horatio stays behind to handle some business, and his wife and daughters set sail for England. A few days later, it reaches the local news in Chicago that the ship that was carrying his wife and daughters had collided with another ship in the Atlantic Ocean, and it sank. Uh, 246 people died in that tragedy. It was the largest naval disaster in history until the Titanic would occur 40 years later. And so... You can imagine, right? Horatio's reading this in the local paper, and he's, he's distraught. Like, he doesn't know if his wife and his kids are okay. He can't, like, text them. Like, he has no idea how to get a hold of them. And so he's, he's worried. He's afraid. He's distraught. And then the next day, um, he gets, receives a Western Union telegram from his wife that reads these six words. Saved alone, what shall I do? And so... In that moment, his worst fears are confirmed, and he realizes that Anna, his wife, had survived, but all four of his daughters had tragically drowned in the accident. And so, obviously devastated, he boards the next ship out of Chicago to go to England to be with his grieving wife, and at some point on that journey, while he's traveling to England, the captain of the ship, uh, this is famously recorded, calls Horatio to the bow of the ship, And he says, a careful reckoning has been made. As best as we can tell, we believe that we are currently passing over the place where your wife's ship went down. And so Horatio Spafford stands there and he stares over the edge of of the bow into these raging waters that claim the lives of his four daughters. And he begins to weep and he takes out a pen and a piece of paper And he writes these words. Here's the original manuscript. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So in response to all his tragedy... Horatio Spafford pens one of the most famous Christian hymns of all time, It Is Well With My Soul. And this is the true story behind the hymn. In five years, uh, or in just a course of two years rather, Horatio loses all five of his children. He loses all of his fortune. All the dreams he has for his life and his family are gone. And if you notice in the song, he's honest about that. He's honest about his pain. He doesn't slap a smile on this and say, you know what, brother, I'm better than I deserve. Like, I can't really complain. He says, no, I'm drowning. He creates the image of I'm drowning here 
in a sea, these sea billows of sorrow. I, I'm, you get the image of waves of grief are coming over him, and he can't catch his breath. And so he's honest about that. And yet, in the midst of all his pain, he also says, with great clarity and conviction, it is well, it is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford's story does two things for us. And I want to unpack this real quick, briefly, as a way to get into our text. Number one, Horatio Spafford's story confronts us with the harsh reality of pain and suffering. Um, the, the harsh reality is this. Uh, nobody does not suffer. Like, because we live in a fallen world, the reality is all you and I have to do is live long enough and we will suffer. Now, we want to avoid that as a culture Everything we do as a culture, we spend all of our time and our our money and our resources trying to avoid and deny the reality of pain and suffering. And that's why we hear a story like Horatio's and there's a deep-seated psychological defense mechanism that goes into play and we say, that would never happen to me. That kind of stuff happens to other people, but that would never happen to me. I I watched a video this week of a, a man being interviewed. He lost his son in the tragic another tragic mass shooting that happened um, in California this week. If you saw that in the news at Thou- in Thousand Oaks at a bar and 12 people were murdered and this guy lost his son and he said, never in a million years did I think this would ever happen to me. There's no way this would happen to me. And here's what's interesting. As I'm watching it, I'm doing the same thing. There's no way this will ever happen to me. Like, I'm so thankful my daughters are safe. I've got three of them. I'm so thankful that I'm able to protect them as a dad. And I'm just telling myself, like, this would never, I'm in total denial. This could never happen to me. And, and, and the reality is, guys, what, what Spafford's story just confronts us with the truth that no matter how hard we try, like, no one is immune or no one is exempt from pain and suffering. In fact, it's inevitable. And the great Tim Keller, he says it like this, better than I can. He says, suffering is everywhere unavoidable and it comes in numerous forms. No matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have a put-together life, no matter how hard we've worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. No amount of money, power, and planning can prevent bereavement, dire illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other sufferings from entering your life. Human life is fatally fragile and subject, subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Life is tragic, he says. Keller's just saying nobody does not suffer. Or as the great theologian and lead singer of REM, Michael Stipe, once said, everybody hurts sometimes, right? Everybody hurts sometimes. And for some of you in the room, this is not a philosophical conversation because you're going through it right now. Like you're, 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 you're in pain right now. You are feeling... You're being slammed and hit with the waves of sorrow and grief that Spafford sang about. And maybe you're not even sure how you got out of bed and got here. Like 2018 has been a hard year for you. One of loss and tragedy and disappointment and heartache. And and you're, you're feeling it now. It's not a philosophical conversation. It's reality. And then there's others of you in the room. You're not going through it now, but you've been there. Like you know suffering. And, at, and, and, and you still have your moments and your days, right? You've been there. And then for the rest of us in the room, we may not be going through it now, but the reality is, and I put myself in this category, we're on the clock. We're on the clock because suffering is certainly coming. And so 
The question is, are you prepared for it? Is it possible to prepare for it? And see, that's, that's the other thing. Are you prepared to suffer well? That's the second thing Horatio's story brings us into, right? Because there's a way to suffer well. There's a way to, to not just survive and cope with the pain, but to actually walk through pain and suffering and come out of it uh, stronger and, and better and, and more alive and, and more aware of God's love and, and more beautiful than you were before. And when you discover that way, even in the midst of your deepest pain, you'll be able to say with integrity, you know what, this sucks. This, I feel like my life's being blown apart, but it is well, it is well with my soul. That's the question I want us to ask this morning. How is this possible? Okay? How is it possible to, to, what does it look like to suffer well? How is it possible for me to suffer well? And, and this is the question Peter writes uh, to address in his letter. So I want to go back to the text, all right? Go back to 1 Peter chapter 4, and let's look at this, because this, this is the question he's writing to address. What does it look like to suffer well? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he says this, Brothers, don't be surprised, beloved rather, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Here's what you've got to realize. Peter's writing to a group of people who are like you and me. They're suffering. They're suffering. And in this case, it happens to be persecution. They're being denied basic rights. Um, uh, they're, they're being mistreated and abused and, and tortured and in some cases arrested and murdered simply because they follow Jesus. And so this is a group of hurting people. And Peter writes this letter to give them encouragement to persevere because he writes it to give them a biblical framework for what suffering is and the role it plays in the Christian life. Peter knows that in order for us to suffer well, the first thing we have to have in place is you have to have a biblical framework for what suffering is and what it's actually doing to you if you're a Christian. And it's really hard to get at. It's really kind of hard to define what suffering is, the nature of it, how God uses it in your life. It's, it's hard to narrow down. And so the Bible, to get at it, uses all these different images of what suffering is and what it's doing. And one of the most prominent images you see throughout the scriptures is you see um, suffering displayed as this image of a furnace. Look at verse 12. Peter says, Don't be surprised when fiery trials have come upon you. Notice, he describes their suffering as fire. He says, Your suffering is a fiery trial. This is a powerful image Peter's using. Um, if you were to unpack this word, just put your eyes on that phrase, fiery trial. It's one word in the Greek, and it's the word pyrosis, which is the Greek word for a furnace. So if we were to translate this literally, Peter's saying, don't be shocked when you find yourself in the furnace. Everybody walks through the furnace sometimes. So he says, don't be surprised when you find yourself in the furnace. And he's doing two things with this image, okay? On the one hand... He's saying that suffering feels like a furnace. I think we have an image of a furnace, maybe. There it is, okay. This is what suffering feels like. Um, you see all this heat, you see these flames, and it's all consuming. That's grief, that's suffering. It, it burns, right? It stings, it consumes, it hurts when you touch it. When it touches you, it hurts. That's suffering. This Suffering feels like a furnace, but listen, this is key. This is huge. In order for you to suffer well, to have a biblical category for what suffering is, what I'm about to say is huge. P- 
Peter wants you to, to see that suffering not only feels like a furnace, suffering functions like a furnace. When you look at that image and you see that furnace, you, you, you understand that anything with that degree of heat is dangerous and it can do a lot of damage. But here's what you also realize. When used properly, anything put into that fire will not be destroyed. It'll be molded and shaped and purified. Does that make sense? Listen, you have, we have to get this as a church, okay? The, re, the refiner doesn't put things in the furnace to destroy them. The refiner puts things in the, into the furnace to, to mold and to shape and to purify them. That's why it's called a purosis, by the way. Purosis, the Greek word furnace is, for furnace is purosis. It's where we get our word in English, purify. Because you put things, the, the furnace is not a destroying machine, it's a purifying machine. It's meant to purify and make more beautiful whatever is put into it. Let's just, let's just think about how this works, okay? You've got to use your imagination. That's what Peter's making you do. Um, take a gold ore. You have an ore of gold, and in that ore, um, you, have, you have impure and you have pure properties, all mixed together, all intertwined, all blended together. You have, you have some materials in there that don't belong. They're impure. They're not, they're, they don't share the same nature as the gold. They compromise the structure of the gold, and they actually cover up the true essence and the beauty of the gold. And so... Um, what a refiner does is he takes that ore with all the purities and impurities all intertwined together and he places it in the furnace and what happens? All the impurities are burned off and the true gold is revealed. Isn't that interesting? The impure can't handle the fire. The impure gets separated from the fire and, and all the stuff that doesn't belong, the stuff that's not part of the same nature, the stuff that covers up the glory of the gold, that stuff gets burned off and killed off by the fire. But, but the gold doesn't get destroyed. In fact, the gold, the fire enhances it. it. It strengthens it. It shapes it. It makes it more pure. It makes it more beautiful. And then in the end, you get to see the real gold in all its glory. A refiner doesn't put things in the fire to destroy them. He puts things in the fire to shape them, refine them, purify them, and make them beautiful. I read a story this week about a pastor who had a friend who was a silversmith, and he asked his silversmith friend, how do you know when the silver has had enough heat? Like, how do you know when it's been in the fire long enough? How do you know when all the impurities are burned away? And the silversmith said, I know the silver has taken enough heat when I can look into it and I can see my own face reflected in the metal. That's when I know it's pure. I know it's had enough heat when I can look into it and I can see my own face reflected in the metal. That's when I know it's pure. Listen, if you're, if you're in Christ, this is how God is using your suffering. I'm just telling you, you, gotta, you, you just have to know this. It's not going to take away the pain but it sure is going to give you a framework and, 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 and a rope to hang on to. God is doing something. He is not trying to destroy you, I promise. He's doing something. He's, he's at work. Listen, He puts us through the fire. He puts us through the fire. He leads us into the furnace. So that in the end, when He looks at us, He sees His own image reflected in us. He sees the beauty of Christ. He sees that you are, you are formed and shaped into the glory of Christ's image. This is, what, this is what suffering is. This is what it does. And, and I get it that, that perhaps some of you in this room, as you hear me say that, you say, man, how could God do that? Like, 
First of all, how could he allow pain and suffering? How could he lead me into pain and suffering? Listen, that, I'm just going to put that question on the table because it's in my mind, and it's, it's, it's in yours if you're being intellectually honest. That question's there. I can't answer that for you now. I actually think that I will kind of answer that in this sermon, but probably not in a way that you would like. <laughs> if you want to talk about that, I'd be happy to get coffee with you and talk about that. But listen, the, the, let me just say this. I'll just suffice it to say at, at this point. It, this is good news for you, that God would, would lead you into suffering, that he would actually, in his sovereign grace, use suffering. The reason that that has to be good news, because first of all, if you remove him from the equation, you still got suffering. You take him out of the equation, you, it hadn't helped anything. But the fact that he's there means that what you're going through, if you're a Christian, cannot destroy you. It cannot ruin you because God promises he's going to use it to make you more beautiful. He's going to use it to purify you. And he's going to use it in the end to bring you into him. Like into a deeper connection, a deeper experience of his love and grace. And that actually is what changes you. And listen, it has to be suffering. This can, this can only happen through suffering. You want to know why? Because only that kind of heat can reveal the impurities. It has to be this way. Like, nothing reveals your heart like suffering. Because suffering reveals what it is that you put your faith in, ultimately. Now, let me just show you this in the Scripture. We're going to flip back. If you want to turn there with me, you can. I'm going to put it on the screen. Just a few chapters, 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's how he starts the letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while... If necessary, man, I would underline that. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that, here's why you've been grieved, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, he starts the letter by using this image of gold being placed in a furnace to describe your suffering. And he says, in the same way you can't refine gold unless you put it in the fire, you and I can't have a pure faith without hardship and trials. He says it's necessary. You see that? It's the only way to reveal the impurities, to shape your faith. The suffering is a necessary part of it. Now let's just, just, just acknowledge for a second that that is a very radical statement in our culture. Because in American Christianity, and I buy into this, guys, we have this mindset that says, you know what, if I... Give my life to Jesus, it's his job to give me my best life now. To make me like happy and comfortable and a nice padded life. To keep my family safe and all this kind of stuff. And, and Peter says, actually man, suffering is a necessary part of your spiritual formation. It's necessary. It will happen. It has to happen. Because it's, it's the heat that tests and refines your faith. There are two ways this happens, okay, if you're taking notes. I've already said one of them, like, like I already said, suffering, if you're taking notes, I think I put it on the screen for you, suffering like a furnace will reveal what you really put your trust in. It's, it's easy for us to say we trust in Jesus when things are good, like all Christians would say that, I certainly do, but the truth is every single Christian in this room has a divided heart. There are things in your heart that don't belong. They're, they're not part of your new nature in Christ. They're impure. Impure motives, impure desires, idols that you put your trust in. And it's the trials, the heat that brings those things to the surface. 
Um, I mean, some of you know my missional community definitely does, and our staff knows, but some of you know that, like, my wife, Carrie, back in the spring had, had this low-grade headache for, like, six or seven weeks, and every now and then it would drift into a migraine that would just wipe her out. And, and it got to the point where I felt like a single dad, like, I was having to leave and come home from work and cook all the meals. I mean, she, was, she barely could function. So at one point, we finally went to the neurologist and found out she's got this like condition where too much fluid is produced on her brain, and it creates intracranial hypertension, which causes these vision problems and headaches and stuff. And so we tried spinal tap, and we tried this medication that made her worse, and we finally realized that it, it's, we're just going to have to regulate it through diet and exercise, which, which works a lot of the time, but it doesn't cure it. It's actually an incurable thing. And so at one point, you know, we, we were in the hospital for like a four or five day stay with this. Um, and, and we're sitting there and she's laid up and she's not really functioning and I'm away from the kids and I'm away from work and I don't know what's happening to my life. And I actually begin to think about the things I wanted to say to God. Things like, how dare you do this to me? Like, I, I live for you. I, my job is to, like, point others to you. Like, I do X, Y, and Z. I do all these things for you, and you're going to let this happen to me? Like, what, what are you doing? Do you even know what you're doing? Like, th- you can't do this to me. And it was in that moment God revealed to me this gross impurity in my heart. That, you know what? At the end of the day, I put a lot of trust and a lot of stock in my religious performance and my own self-righteousness. And if I'm really honest, I think he owes me. And God just brought that to the surface, and I was just broken by that. Like, I hated to see that. But then that wave of grief was met with a wave of mercy. And I was like, man, God, thank you that you already knew that about me anyways, and you still love me. Like, how awesome are you that you already saw that impurity and you love me anyways? Thank you for showing that to me because I don't want to be that. I don't want to do that. And so would I call my wife suffering good? No, of course not. Suffering's not good. It doesn't belong in the story. But it's here, and God's going to use it, and he brings good out of it. He brings good out of it because it's a furnace. Listen, trials and troubles reveal what your foundation is. This is Jesus' point about do you build your house on the rock or build your house on the sand, and when the storm comes, it reveals your foundation, the structures, the things that you build your life on and put your trust in. Suffering brings that to the surface and, and it shows you the places that you're trusting, whether it's food or work or Netflix or online shopping or drinking or drugs or pornography or an extramarital affair or you, man, you fill in the blank. And when God shows you those things, he is not trying to destroy you. He's trying to purify you. He's refining your faith and your character. That's the first reason uh, suffering is necessary. It reveals what you really put your trust in. Second reason why suffering is necessary to refine your faith is because it teaches you to put your trust in Jesus alone because it awakens you to your neediness and your dependence. There's a cliche that we sometimes say to people when they're suffering. I mean, I know I've probably said it. Um, how many of you are familiar with the, with, the, with the phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle? That's, that's a pretty bad uh, misinterpretation of something else Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. The Bible actually never says that. In fact, the Bible says the opposite of that. Listen, by default and by design, God has already given you more than you can handle. He made you human. 
You can't do it alone. He, 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 we're human beings. We're needy. We're made to trust and depend on God for everything. So newsflash, you already have more on you than you can handle, even when life is good. And when you fail to realize that, it's because you've bought into the illusion that you're in control and you don't need God. And nothing, nothing, nothing kills the illusion of control like suffering. See, suffering tells me that I am not in control and I never was in control. It was all an illusion. I can, I can do my best to protect my children, but I can't protect them from life. I just can't. They're too, they're too vulnerable. I'm too, I can't do it. And so suffering awakens us to our neediness, our vulnerability, our powerlessness, our need for God. And God uses that to bring us to a place where we realize the inadequacy in ourselves, the inadequacy in the things that we put our trust and hope in. And then you can see with fresh eyes in that moment, Jesus is your only hope. Like he's, Jesus is your deepest need. And sometimes you don't realize Jesus is your deepest need until Jesus is all you have. That's what Horatio Spafford realized. That's what Job realized. If you're not familiar with the story of Job in the Old Testament, Job's a lot like Spafford. Very wealthy man, um, had all these children, all this success and prosperity, loved God. And then he gets a series of reports that all his children are dead, all his money's gone, his body breaks out in all these boils. And so what does Job do? Well, he's honest about the pain. He tears his clothes. He shaves his head. He falls in the dirt. He screams out in agony to God, though he never sinned against God. And then he says this in Job 23. When he's finished with me, I shall come out as gold. Job walks into the furnace, and he comes out closer to God. He walks into the furnace He comes out with a deeper trust in God's love and in God's care. It it doesn't destroy him. It purifies him. This is what suffering does. Lots of other images and metaphors for this in the Bible. I'll give you one more just because I think it's so powerful. Um, Jesus uses the image of a vine being pruned. You know, we've done a lot of work in this series with John 15. So I want to hop over there real quick. I'll just put it on the screen John 15, uh, verse 1, here's what Jesus says. I'm the true vine. He goes on to say, you're the branches. And he says, my father's the vine dresser. I'm the vine, you're the branches, he's the vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Raise your hand if you've ever seen a vine pruned. I'm about to show you one, I think. we have it? Image of a vine. There it is. To the, okay, look at that. To the ignorant eye, like mine, uh, it looks like it's dead. I mean, it it's looks like a total waste. This vine dresser has come in with these sharp blades, and he's just attacked this thing. And, and, and if you could see the full picture, you'd see all these beautiful green leaves on the ground and all these little clusters of grapes that have yet to mature. Just a tragedy. Like, all this stuff's just laying on the ground, and, and you see this poor vine sitting there bleeding at a hundred places, and um, it's, just, it's just been repeatedly cut. But the trained eye knows that any good gardener, any good horticulturist, any good vine dresser, he's, not, he's actually not destroying the branches, he's making them more alive. 
He's, he's bringing vitality to the vine, to the branches. Um, one of my best friends from childhood, he's a good friend of Jared as well, um, is a guy named Cody George. If you know him, you're lucky. Um, and, uh, but Cody George graduated from the University of Arkansas with a horticulture degree. He's the head horticulturist at Crystal Bridges um, in Bentonville. So if you've ever seen the gardens there, they're nationally acclaimed. That's all his work. He designs it. He oversees the team. He nurtures it, cares for it, keeps it all alive. And so I called Cody this week just to interview him about gardening and pruning. And I asked him a simple question. Why does a vine dresser prune the branches on a vine? Like, in your own words, what's the purpose of that? Why prune? And Cody said, um, there are, I'm just going to read you his notes. There are two biological reasons why any good vine dresser has to prune the branches. Number one, he prunes the branches so that they will develop a deeper connection to the vine. And number two, as a result of that deep connection, the vine dresser prunes so that the branches will produce more fruit. That's why you prune. You prune so the branches stay deeply connected and the branches bear more fruit. That's Jesus' point, guys. When the, when the Father comes at us with a pruning blade in His hand, He's not trying again to destroy us. He's bringing life and vitality to the branch. Here's how this happens, biologically and spiritually. I asked Cody, I said, how does that happen? He went on to say this. When the branch is pruned and wounded, it forces the branch to draw on the life of the vine in a way that it never has before. <laughs> I mean, the metaphor just teaches itself. So that it actually makes the branch stronger and more alive and more fruitful. Because it's pulling from the life of the vine in a way that it's never had to before. But here's the key. You have to cut it first in order for that to happen. If, if you're in this room and you're in Christ, your wounds and your suffering force you to abide in the vine. That's what God's doing. He's, he's bringing to, you to a place of drawing on the life and the love of Jesus to, to, to foster dependence and a deeper connection and a deeper experience of the life of the vine in a way that you can't learn apart from suffering. And as a result, you become more beautiful. You are more alive, more fruitful. You... You look like a vine that was pruned in the winter and now is glorious in the summer. I think I have a picture of that. A vine that was pruned in the winter and now is gloriously alive in the summer. Jesus says this is what happens to you when you suffer. Think about how it happens. I mean, you think about the fruit. The fruit he's talking about is the fruit of the Spirit, by the way. It's character traits. It's having the life and character of Jesus produced in you. You think about this from Galatians 5. You've got love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Who doesn't want that? We all want that. But in order for the Father to grow us in those areas, we have to walk through the furnace. We have to submit ourselves to the pruning blades. Because only suffering can do that, right? It's suffering is how you learn joy and peace and patience. Suffering is what burns off the rough edges and makes you more gentle, does it not? Suffering grows love in you, right? Does it not? Humility, self-control, it's the suffering that God uses to form us. The reason I share all of that with you so that I don't lose you is because Peter wants you to see that in order to suffer well, you must have a biblical category for what suffering is 
and how God uses it for your spiritual formation. Now, let me close with this thought, because I know what many of you are probably thinking if you're anything like me. That's really helpful, and I'm glad I know that. But how in the world does that actually help me get through suffering? So knowing that's great, I, I mean, I understand that, but how, how do I actually walk through the fire and suffer well when I'm in the thick of it? And the answer to that question is found in our union with Christ. This is what Peter wants to show us. So I want to close by going back to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you've turned away, you can turn back there at 1 Peter 4, and we're going to go to verse 13. We've unpacked 12. We're going to look at 13. Peter says the answer is found in our union with Christ, which again just means that Christ is in you and you are in Christ. He says this, verse 13, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Look at that phrase. That you may also rejoice and be glad that you share in His glory. Peter says our suffering and our being made new, this process of being refined and made new and, and suffering, this is all tied to our union with Christ. And he says that, if you're looking at the text, he says because you're in Jesus... You now share in his sufferings and you share in his future resurrection glory. You participate in the suffering of Jesus in, in, in that his cross counts for you. It pays for your sin. And then you actually get to participate in his resurrection life and beauty all because you're in Christ. Does that make sense? Now, also because Christ is in you, he participates in your suffering. And he participates in your spiritual formation and the process of your glorification. So I just want to break that down real quick. I want to talk about those two things, okay, real quick. I want to talk about the good news that Christ is in you, just for some practical application, okay? The good news that Christ is in you and how that relates to your suffering. Listen to me. If you're a Christian, that means that Jesus is in you, which means that you are never alone in your grief. You have been united you have been indwelled by the one whom Isaiah calls the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Jesus is in you and he's acquainted with your pain. He knows your pain. Now, why is that good news? Think about support groups for a second, okay? Uh, for cancer patients, parents who've lost children, families of addicts. The reason those groups are so effective and so helpful is because when you're suffering, you want to be around someone who can sympathize with you and speak the language of your pain. Do you not? And, and, and Hebrews 4 says that you have in Jesus this sympathetic high priest. He is able to, because he has suffered, sympathize and speak the language of your pain. And if you will turn to him, Jesus will always meet you in the place of pain. And Psalm 34 says, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. It may feel like he's far away, but he's actually closer to you. The opportunity to connect with him is greater. He's, he's there. He's near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. You, you're not alone because Jesus is in you, and he's walking through the fire with you. And maybe some of you hear me say that, and you say, That's, that really is awesome. But when God pruned me, I'm telling you, Adam, he cut too deep. Because I'm bleeding out over here. Like, and if that's not you, all of us in the room will feel that way at some point in our lives. I'm cut too deep. I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it, right? Some of you are there this morning. 
And yet you have this glorious promise from Isaiah 42, 3 that says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. So you, you just think about that for a second. The, the image of a smoldering wick. You've got this candle that's all, burned all the way down, barely a flicker left in it, just this tiny glow of orange. It's so vulnerable, you could just barely blow, and the thing would be, you know, it would it'd be done, it'd be toast. And Isaiah says, Jesus will be gentle with you when you're in that place. He will not let your light go all the way out. He will not destroy you. He will be gentle with you. Sam Albury says it way better than I can. He's commenting on that verse from Isaiah 42, and he says this. I'll put it on the screen. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says, In a fallen world like this, all of us are people who have both sinned and been sinned against. Some of this will have left us with deep wounds that seem unfathomable even to us, let alone others. But Jesus knows us fully and understands us entirely. He loves us more than we love ourselves. He is even more committed to our ultimate joy than we are. There is no wound or vulnerability he does not understand or handle with the utmost care. He is someone we can trust with our most tender bruises and fragility. He will not be clumsy with us. He won't steamroll us. He can apply his unimaginable strength to us with affection and sensitivity. In our pain and confusion, in our weakness and mess, we come to him assured that he alone is trustworthy. He has the power and capacity to help us and the tenderness and care to want to. We can trust him with our deepest pains and bruises. There is none more fearsome, but none gentler. Because Jesus is in you, you are not alone. You have a sympathetic high priest who knows exactly how to be gentle with you and exactly how to care for you and meet you in the place of pain. And it's not only good news that Christ is in you, but because you are in Christ, that means that when the Father looks at you, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And he loves you with the same love with which he loves his own Son. You want to know why that's good news to remember in times of suffering? Because at least, if I know this is true for me, when I'm suffering, my pain gets exaggerated because I'm tempted to believe and often do that God is punishing me for something. Are you there with me? Does everybody else feel that? God must be punishing me for something or he's abandoned me. He doesn't love and he doesn't care. And the fact that you are in Christ and when God sees you, he sees Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and the love of his son speaks to that temptation and that hurt. So let me close with this thought. Why, in the midst of his grief, does Horatio Spafford write about his sin being nailed to a cross? Why does he go there? I mean, he, he sings in one of the verses, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. What does that got to do with four little girls who are dead? Everything. Because when suffering comes, Horatio Spafford knows that we, we, we believe God's punishing us. And Spafford invites all of us to look to the cross and see that God's not punishing you. All your punishment fell on Jesus. Listen, God may be purifying you, but he's never, ever punishing you. 
If you're a Christian, you can take heart that your suffering is never punitive. Purifying, yes. The Lord's discipline sometimes, never, ever is it punishment. Because there is therefore no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. For you who are in Christ Jesus. And it can't mean that he doesn't love you. Because again, Spafford's inviting you to look to the cross. Your suffering doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. And that he doesn't love you. Because the cross proves that he cares for you. He gave up his one and only son. Listen, Spafford writes this hymn to a God who has lost a child. A God who gave up his one and only son. To bring us into his love and bring us into his family. And whenever you see that, when you see that Christ is in you, and you have a sympathetic high priest, a savior, when you see that you are in Christ and you are beloved and cared for, God is not mad at you. He's not punishing you. He's with you. He's holding you. He's your dad. He will kiss the boo-boo. Like I promise you. When you see that, you will be able to say with Horatio Spafford, with Job, and with countless others, Suffering believers throughout the centuries. This hurts. And it is well, it is well with my soul. Each week we, we close uh, by partaking of communion. And all this meal reminds us of is that we partake in the life of God. And he partakes in our life. We participate in Jesus' suffering and his resurrection, his broken body and his shed blood for our sin. And then therefore he participates in our life. We have union and communion. That's why we call this meal communion. And so if you're in this room and you would say that you're a believer, like I put my trust in Jesus and him alone, that's where you find your hope and you're a Christian. We want to invite you in just a moment to come and celebrate this meal with us. Um, We have two stations on each side of me here and two stations on the back, a gluten-free option um, to my left and your right. And the way we take communion is you just tear a piece of bread off and dip it into the cup. And so what I'm going to do, having explained that, is I'm just going to invite the band to come forward. And I'm going to invite you to stay engaged in this moment and go ahead and just stand where you are. And I'm going to ask you to just stay in this moment. Um, this, this is part of our worship gathering. We're going to celebrate communion together. You'll see it's chaos. Sometimes people do it in groups. Those are missional communities. Don't, hopefully you don't feel isolated. Nobody's trying to do that to you. Um, you'll see this is kind of chaos. It's sort of just designed to be that way. Um, we like it like that. Um, after we take communion, we're going to come back to our seat and we're going to sing another song, a song of response to what God is saying to you this morning. And let me just say this. If you're in this room and you would say, man, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure where I'm at with God. Um, today, today is the day of salvation for you. And my hope, our hope as pastors and as a church is that you will realize that Jesus walked through the, the furnace for you, the furnace of God's wrath so that you don't have to. He was consumed by the Father's judgment so that you never have to be. So that you can be welcomed in, delighted in, loved, and eternally protected by the Father. So our prayer is that you would put your faith in Jesus today. And if you would make that decision, man, we would love to know that. Luke, our pastor here, is Jared is here. I'm here. We'd love to meet with you. We'd love to talk with you about that. Or if you have questions, we'd love to answer those for you. Let's pray. Father, come and do your work now. Uh, the work that only you can do. Lead us into a deeper connection to the vine. I pray that when the city looks at us, they would see a church that bears much fruit for your glory. We 
pray in Christ's name. Amen.